Good morning. I am uh, Thomas, and I'm one of the pastors here at Parkview. And uh, like Pastor Fern, I am glad to be here with you this morning. Of course, yearning for a future day when we will be together, but uh, it's even special just to be in the room today, and I, I can't wait for the, for the day when this room, East, North Campus, are all together again. Uh, this week, we're going to be wrapping up our series in the Psalms. As Pastor Fern told you, we'll be in Psalm 77, so I really encourage you to get your Bible out. I will be in there a ton, so don't get it out and then put it away. We're not done with it. Bring it back out. Um, the reason that we've been in the Psalms uh, for these past six or seven weeks is that we started with Easter, and at Easter we said, well, the message of Easter and the truth that we proclaim in the story of Easter is that Christ is king. Christ, in his death and resurrection, has been enthroned above all things forever. And now, in light of Easter, we need to think about what does that mean? Uh, it's been historic throughout the Christian uh, church that in, in response to Easter, in, in this time in the church calendar, we ask that kind of question. What should we do? What kind of people must we be in light of the fact that Christ has been raised from the dead and is now reigning forever? Uh, the Psalms are a great place to look for answers to that question because one of the big mega themes of the Psalms is that God reigns forever. God is king over Israel and king of, of all things, king and creator. And so it's a great answer, uh, a place to look for answers to our question. Uh, now, like many of you, I, over these past few weeks, have been doing a lot of projects around the house. Seems like, you know, as I drive by Menards, Lowe's, it seems like many of you are doing those with me. Um, you know, it's just, it's tough to sit in your house and you see that one little thing that you've been thinking of doing for years and when you're, you see it five times a day, you just got to do it. Well, um, like you have been doing that and I've noticed, uh, like many of you have been going to the authoritative source for help with DIY projects, YouTube. And uh, on YouTube, you know, you look and you say, fix my water heater, fix my, you know, whatever it is. Um, and you get just tons of responses. And um, I've noticed that there are a couple of different genres of DIY YouTube video. The first one is a very orderly account of sort of, oh, your toilet is leaking. Here are the three steps uh, that you need to do. And it's, you know, someone in front of a camera and they sort of say, hey, one, two, three, fix your wax seal, do the stuff around there, and three, and you're done. Um, very orderly uh, coaching through the sort of the three steps. Then the other genre is someone just doing it. They just say, oh, here's me putting in my new wood floor. And it's just a video and they do a time lapse and it's not a lot about how to do it. They just want to share with you uh, the struggles, the mistakes they made, and how it turned out. Now, if Psalm 77 were a YouTube video, it would be type 2. Psalm 77, as I worked through this and studied this over these last couple of weeks in preparation for today, and I tried to get to three points in a poem, a nice sermon outline for you, a nice easily digestible, here are the three tips, three lessons. Psalm 77 refuses to be made into a sermon, refuses to be made into a nice, neat, bow-on-top thing. In many ways, uh, so today, this is probably going to feel a lot more like a meditation on Psalm 77 than it will feel like a nice, neat message. Um, what we're going to see is that this psalm, like Pastor Friend said, wants to show us how to deal with the day of trouble, not by giving us sort of three steps to follow, but by a sufferer sharing their story of suffering in the day of trouble and how they reconciled that with the goodness of God. Uh, let me pray briefly before we, before we really dive in. 
Heavenly Father, we need your ears to hear, your eyes to see. We need your heart to believe, to see reality as it really is, Lord. We're so prone to distorting things in our own minds, believing lies, deceiving ourselves. We need your sight, your ears, your words to come and correct our flawed vision. We need hope today. We need joy and peace. We need your spirit to come and make us new. Do all these things so that we can be the agents of your kingdom that you have made us to be. Do all this through Psalm 77, we pray. Amen. Now, uh, the big question that we want to ask as we come to Psalm 77, the, the, the question that Psalm 77 wants us to ask of it is, how do I deal with the day of trouble? How do I deal with the day of trouble? How can we face it? And this psalm, like I said, is not a nice, neat, uh, orderly account of how to do that, but rather, it's, it's a, a friend coming alongside and taking you through three scenes along a journey through troubling days. I'll call them three scenes, not three points, but three scenes. This psalm invites us into the experience of a sufferer and plots a path toward restoration. Uh, and I'm just going to work through this psalm and, and point things out as we go. Uh, psalm 77 begins with, I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, there's that phrase, in the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. This initial scene in Psalm 77 paints the picture of the kind of suffering that has elicited this psalm. What has happened? The, the day of trouble. Now, the day of trouble seems so generic that it's almost funny. The day of trouble. How's your day, troubled? I, I don't, you know, it's just so generic that, but that's helpful for us because we can sort of insert what, where we're at into that, into that uh, sort of fill in the blank there. Um, and, and Psalm 77 is not so much about that day of trouble, but how the sufferer is responding. And in these first four, four verses, it paints this picture. Here's how this person is responding. They're crying aloud to God, that is in prayer. Uh, they are confident that God will hear them. Aloud to God and he will hear me. You see that in verse one? So praying to God with confidence that God hears them. We're off to a great start. Uh, number three, in the day of trouble, I seek the Lord. This, that phrase, I seek the Lord, is sort of a loaded phrase. It doesn't just mean I, I'm praying more. It means I'm coming to God in repentance, in hopes of faithfulness and obedience. In my day of trouble, I'm, I'm praying with confidence that God hears me, and I'm looking for anywhere that I need to apologize to God, where I need to amend my ways and be faithful to him. And finally, my hand is stretched out without wearying. This is, again, sort of in the posture of prayer to God, but without wearying. Uh, Basically, all night, I'm awake, and we see that, you know, you hold my eyelids open. You get my little son, when I was putting him to sleep the other day, reached up, and I said, close your eyes, and then he reached up into my eyes and went like this. And I was like, thank you for that sermon illustration. He was just holding my eyelids. He said, no, no closing your eyes. You will stay up. And this is, this is the picture that the psalmist has. Um, in short, what is, what is this sufferer doing in Psalm 77? They, they are following the standard script for how to deal with a lack of peace, the, the internal chaos that suffering brings. They're following it to a T. 
pray to God. Pray to God with confidence that he hears you. Uh, seek the Lord. Is there anywhere you need to apologize to God? Anywhere that you need to repent of sin? Uh, and, and continue. Lather, rinse, repeat. Pray, have confidence, seek him nonstop. Great. They have followed steps one, two, three, and four for, listen, if you walked into my office on Wednesday morning and said, Pastor, I'm struggling, I'm suffering, things aren't going like I want, and I just, I'm troubled. I would say, well, you should pray. You should, and I would lay out these four steps. I'd say, pray, have confidence, see, is there any way you need to repent? And, is there, and repeat. And yet, in spite of this sufferer following the script that we give sufferers, we see in verse 2, the third line, my soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my, spirit, my spirit's not revived, my spirit faints. This psalm is addressing a special kind of suffering. This psalm is addressing the, the secondary suffering that comes when the normal way that we deal with our internal discomfort and disillusionment fails. When we follow all the steps, when we check all the boxes, when we, when we follow the advice of our pastor, <laughs> like me, and, and, and yet we still find ourselves discomforted and internally chaotic. We, we cannot reconcile our experience with what we expect and perhaps what we think God owes us. Now, you've gone to your Christian friends, you've gone to your pastor, you've asked all these things, and yet you still don't have peace. You still feel stuck and confused. Where is God in the midst of this? Now, the, the simple fact is that, that, and the fact that this psalm is well aware of, is that ushering our souls from a place of pain to a place of peace is not as simple as sort of A, B, C. It's not as simple as sort of, how do I get from here to Solon? Well, drive up Highway 1. Make two right turns. You're there, right? It's not like that. It's more like uh, if you've ever lost your dog and trying to find your runaway puppy, right? I, I remember doing this several times when I was, you know, as a kid. The dog's loose and it's gone. And how do you find it? Do you go from A to B to C? No, you're, you're sort of wandering around. For me, it was wandering around in a little forest in our backyard. And I think I heard a yip. Oh, go that way. And oh, wait. I think I heard a little scratching. I guess I should be going that way. And finally, uh, finally, you find it. And if you were to plot the way that you got there, would it look like a straight line? Absolutely not. Uh, it would look like something like that. That, more often than not, is the way that we make it through suffering. This psalm is in tune with this and rejects the idea that oversimplified explanations for our suffering can be found easily and applied readily. Christian brothers and sisters, some of you are there today. Perhaps many of you are right where this psalm says you might end up. I'm certain most of you have been there at some point, and I know that probably all of you will eventually find yourselves here. And like I said, the, the first thing that this psalm does in this first scene, if you will, is to remind us that this kind of suffering is not unique. There's a psalm written about it just for us today. You are not alone, not in this church, not in the Bible, not in this city, not in this room. Well, not in your room, probably. God knows what you are going through. Many have walked the path that you are on. Pastor Tim Keller says that of all cultures throughout history, our Western culture may be the worst at preparing us for dealing with suffering. More often than not, I don't know about you, 
but when I encounter suffering, my first response is shock. I can't believe this happened. This shouldn't be happening. I'm indignant that I am suffering. It's no surprise that we have, we have trouble processing suffering when our first response is so often to say, my life should have gone suffering-free. Pastor John Onwuchekwa says, nobody's life is going to turn out the way that they think it is. Suffering is as real as the sky is blue. And praise God that Psalm 77 doesn't approach, uh, doesn't approach sufferers with the voice of a coach with three simple steps to, to win and get victory, but with the arm of a kind friend. God puts his arm around us in Psalm 77 and says, I, I know what you're going through. Psalm 77 acknowledges that fact. God acknowledges that fact in Psalm 77. Life in a world corrupted by sin will inevitably involve suffering. And you might not need it right now, this, this psalm, but you will. Someone you love will. And what I want us to do as a church is to take Psalm 77 and, and let it marinate in our souls. For the day is coming. If it's not here already, it is coming. You might not need it. Someone does. Suffering is not simple. Our souls are not simple. Our souls are a big, messy mass of emotions and convictions and experiences and hopes and losses and trauma. And God knows that. And if God recognizes that, we, we ought to as well. When, when someone in your community group comes to you with, in suffering, uh, there is absolutely, praise God, a time and many psalms that say, here are a few things that you need to do. Here are a few approaches that would be practically helpful. And then there are psalms like this uh, that say, let's, let's just walk through this together. More often than not, what we need the most, especially initially when someone comes to you with, in suffering, what they need is an arm around their shoulder, not a pep talk. God knows that. We ought to know it too. Meaningful support in times of suffering more often than not looks like a, a, a promise to be with them. A promise to be like the person in Psalm 77, realizing that what they need is time, support, love, and a little bit of advice. A little bit of, here's how it worked for me. Often the greatest gift we can give is our supporting presence. Let's be a Psalm 77 kind of church in that way. So, and, and I hope if you're going through this today, like I said, uh, that you, and, and maybe you have done the standard ways of dealing with it. You've, you've encountered suffering in this last week, and you've done step A, pray, you've had confidence, you've, you've persisted, you've been nonstop going after God in prayer, and you haven't found comfort like the psalmist in Psalm 77, I hope you would see someone else has been there. Many, many people have been there. God knows that I would be here. So that's our first scene. Uh, our second scene is in uh, verses 5 through 9, which say this, I consider the days of old, you see the psalmist sort of turning their gaze now. Uh, the years long ago, I said, let me meditate, let me remember my song in the night, let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? The psalmist, is the author of the psalm, having begun in a place of raw and chaotic pain, now moves to a place of reflection. 
I consider the days of old, verse 5. It says, let me remember my song in the night. He's talking about the days in the past when there was joy, when there was rejoicing, when there was happy things going on. Um, There were happy things going on in his life. And yet that just makes him go deeper into suffering, saying, well, if that was that way then and God gave that then, why can't he give it now? And he says, immediately, that thought prompts an immediate reckoning with his situation, a diligent search we see. Uh, in, in, uh, in verse 6, then I made a diligent search, having thought through those things, followed by these five stingingly honest questions that get at the very heart of his suffering then, and if we're honest, our suffering now. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? That is, have I for the last time tasted the sweetness of God's presence? Why don't I sense him? Why doesn't he feel near? Will I I never feel that again? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? That is, have I finally gone too far? Have I pushed God over the edge? Is he worn out in dealing with me? Has he decided that enough is enough? Are his promises at an end for all time? He says, that is, has God canceled his relationship with me? Has has he annulled it? Has he invalidated his promise of salvation to me? Have I lost everything here? I feel so alone. Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion and said no more? What's most surprising, perhaps, about these questions is not primarily how honest they are, and they are stinging. It's very surprising to find these kinds of questions in a psalm of praise to God, in a psalm that is in a book about how to follow God. God anticipates these questions. What is perhaps most surprising is that each of these questions is is given and is asked in reference to God's self-revelation of himself in Exodus 34. This is when God's people had been led out of Egypt, out of slavery in Egypt, and God revealed himself to his people through Moses. And he, he said this, you know, maybe the f- most famous passage or one of the most famous passages in the nation of Israel at that time. Exodus 34, 6, it says, The Lord passed before him, that is Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. This became sort of a standard uh, expression of who God was. We actually, this was not on purpose, uh, but John Serwinski um, in, you know, shared with us Psalm 103 when we began. And you could hear some of those things. You know, as, as I was singing and listening, I was like, wow, that's, there it is again. Um, the psalmist in Psalm 77 is actually meditating on this statement of who God is, a God merciful, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love for generations, and saying, really? The psalmist inner chaos is being brought to the Lord in prayer. He has repented, he has come empty-handed, he has persisted, and yet his soul is disquieted and chaotic, and when he makes this diligent search to say, what is in there? He finds something even more disturbing. 
the doubts that his heart is harboring and that all of our hearts harbor in the midst of deep suffering are not just about the circumstances that we're facing, but about the character of the God who brought us there. If we're honest, we must recognize that the psalmist is not alone in this sentiment. Upon further reflection, or as the psalmist says, upon a diligent search, at the root of our pain and disillusionment are deep questions that scrape at the very heart of who our God is. Have you ever reached the point in your suffering where you wonder if your present experience of pain invalidates God's promises? The psalmist has. You're not alone if you are there. If the psalmist can ask such challenging questions, then we can too. And in fact, we must. Uh, What I can tell you in my few years pastoring and more years total in ministry, but uh, in, in counseling you, the people of Parkview, is that for people who come to me with these kind of questions, uh, there's sort of two ways to go. One is to express them to God. Shout them at him. He's ready for them. Like I said, he anticipates them. He's given you a script to almost to read from. They're right there. One is to, to offer them honestly to God, wanting an answer, wanting him to prove to you that you're wrong, Wanting him to show you his heart. Wanting him to show you. Prove me wrong about your goodness. Prove me wrong. My circumstances are telling me a different story, but prove prove them wrong. Prove the demons wrong. Prove everything wrong and show me how good you are. Or we we can store those questions up in our heart, never say them out loud because they feel dangerous, or only say them to others, or, or almost cast them at God as sort of a stone. I know you're not good because of X, Y, Z. In my experience, What matters is not how harsh the questions are. It matters what you do with them. The people with the harshest questions who go to God with them are so often healed and radiant on the other other end. And I have experience with other people who have, you know, probably not as bad circumstance-wise. Their questions are probably not as tough. And yet because they kept them locked inside, because they kept them as as sort of justification against God, they, they crumbled. What will we do with our questions? This psalm tells us, bring them to God. God urges us to come to him, not just sometimes, not just occasionally, all the time. God's heart is inevitably drawn to those who are suffering. You will not surprise him with your doubts. He he has seen them all. He's written them down for you. But the series of questions, who, you know, is his suffering at at an end, or is his, his compassion at an end? Will he spurn forever? Inevitably, they hang in the air, yearning for a response from God. From someone, what do we do with these questions? Maybe they're hanging in the air in your living room today. Psalmist, the Psalm 77 doesn't leave us hanging. It gives us answers. So look at, let's look at this third scene in Psalm 77. It says this. Then I said, starting in verse 10, Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You, have made, you are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. 
Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Parkview, when, when suffering comes and you find yourself unspeakably, unthinkably distraught, without relief, questioning the very goodness of God, the solution is this. Appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. In moments of pain and lament, reviewing your own personal history and, and the past of your conduct will not reveal the answers that you need. Meditating on the wonderful works of your neighbors and friends and family may be nice and may be cheery, but they will not satisfy your heart. They will be insufficient. If the core of our internal strife is a lack of connection with the very character of God, then the only solution is to go to him once again and ask him to show us and remind us and to let us meditate on his goodness to ask him to remind us, why do we follow you? Why do we worship you? What, show us, remind us who you are, to meditate on his mighty strength, on his power to redeem, even to the uttermost. In the history of Israel, there perhaps was not a more despairing moment than when they found themselves enslaved in Egypt. Without hope, under the thumb of the most powerful military regime to that date in history, how will we ever get out of here? But our God is a redeeming God. And, and that is why in Psalm 77, the psalmist in these last 10 verses revisits that time when God's people were moaning under the yoke of slavery, unjustly oppressed, and he said, I will not forget you. I will lead you out. You, you hear these things here in this psalm. When the waters saw you, the, the waters were afraid. The clouds poured out water. The crash was on every side. Your way was through the sea. You passed through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. It's talking about and meditating on the mighty deed of God when he led his people out of Israel. And so that becomes exhibit one for the psalmist in Psalm 77. He said, if I want to remember, if I want to meditate on the goodness of the Lord and how he doesn't let his people struggle forever, I will remember his mighty work in Egypt. And in doing so, of course, in, in doing so, he, that is God, revealed his power over the mightiest military power on earth and over every natural element, right? Over the water of the Nile, the locusts of the ground, uh, the frogs and the crops and, and the blotting out of the sun, uh, and from the pillar of fire and cloud where he led them through the wilderness, even to the depths of sea that he called to part and they obeyed him because he's the creator and king. And he did it because Israel is his. His people, his flock, his sheep. He no longer could bear the sound of their crying, and he intervened with all of the power that the Creator can bear. The psalmist says, my personal history will not comfort me. Nice thoughts, chicken soup for the soul will not do it. What I need is the unadulterated character of God to come and impress itself upon my heart, and so I'll remember what God has done. And this is exactly what we must do today. While this sufferer looks back at God's redemption of his people out of Egypt, we look back not just at the Exodus, but at the greater act of redemption to which the Exodus pointed. See, on the night that Jesus was betrayed and unjustly arrested and later killed, Jesus spent a sleepless night in prayer. 
Psalm 77, 1 through 3 is an apt description of what Christ's experience was in the Garden of Gethsemane. I'm crying out to God. I know he'll hear me. I'm, I'm in my day of trouble. I'm seeking the Lord. My, my, at night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. A nonstop time of prayer. And yet, because his soul was in chaos, right? And yet, on the cross, Jesus cries out, my God, why have you forsaken me? On the cross, his, his prayer is rejected. Indeed, Christ is abandoned. Indeed, if we look at these questions, will the Lord spurn, will he never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love ceased? Of Christ on the cross, these questions became true. God did shut up his compassion for Christ. God did cease to be merciful to the human Christ. The Lord did spurn. The Lord did turn his back. The curse of Psalm 77 fell upon Christ. Christ entered into our suffering and experienced the curse of sin so that when we cry aloud to God, as the psalmist does in Psalm 77, we can be sure that the answer to those questions is no. Has his suffering, or has his compassion been shut up? No. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Because on the cross, the answer for Christ was yes. The answer for us today will always be no. The Lord will not spurn us forever. He will, he will again be favorable. He will come near to us. He will. Because as long as the tomb is open, God's compassion will never be shut toward you. As long as the grave is empty, his heart will be full of love for you. The resurrection and in that enthronement that we celebrated at Easter and now as we meditate on what it means that God is king, it means that the curses that are explained in, verse 70, in chapter 77 will never fall on us because they already fell on Christ our king. Unto death. And yet he was raised to be our victorious king. And, and I think, if I'm honest, my, my favorite part of this psalm is the way that it ends. We might expect, like so many other psalms, that, that it would end on a note of utter victory. That it, that it would end, you know, verse 20, you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. And then we'd sort of expect verse 21. And now, everything's better. Now, I'm full of peace. Now, I'm full of compassion. Now, or now I'm full of, uh, you know, peace. But it doesn't. The psalm pans out on the sufferer, sort of zooms out and fades away on the sufferer, seemingly still in the midst of his meditation on the mighty works of God. It doesn't quickly move on. It doesn't quickly forget what has been done. It doesn't quickly forget the suffering and pretend as if it's not there. It simply leaves us meditating on the mightiness and the goodness of God. The way to healing will be there. It doesn't end at the end of Psalm 77, and it probably won't end for us today. But what we can do is impress the goodness of God on our heart by recounting to our own hearts and to, to the hearts of those who are suffering around us the goodness of God throughout history, the many works of old, the way that God has redeemed and rescued sufferers and sinners throughout history. The battle isn't over. And, and what Psalm 77 portends is that a greater redemption is coming. Christ will return and set everything right that has gone wrong in this past week, in this past month, in this past forever. He will set it to rights. And so we look forward, 
not just back, but forward at what God will do. Christ will return. He will set things right. But for now, we address our souls to the Lord and recount his wonderful works to our souls, to one another. And and let's become, Parkview, let's become a church that lives Psalm 77. That, that with our own hearts, not despairing, and, and when we greet fellow sufferers and, and those who are suffering, not giving simple answers, but waiting, listening to difficult questions without judgment, without, uh, without quick and easy answers, hearing them, reminding one another of God's goodness, and pointing forward to the day when God's ultimate justice and ultimate redemption will be accomplished and applied. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you know the way of the sufferer. You know the way of those who are deep in the heart of grief and in the pocket of pain because you didn't stay aloof from our problems. You didn't stay far off. You drew near. And when this passage speaks of your unseen footprints through the sea, we can't help but think, of when you had footprints, when you walked with us here on earth in the person of Christ. Praise you. We pray that the Spirit of Christ would come and invade our hearts, comfort us, make us comforters of one another by your Spirit, and transform us to be like Christ in every way today. We pray all of this in the name of and for the glory of your precious Son, Jesus. Amen.